This is Continuum Drag, a weekly podcast revisiting television, sci-fi, fantasy, and everything in between. This week, Kolchak the Night Stalker, episodes 17 and 18. Among the philosophers, the great thinkers, and the common Joes of this world, no question is more controversial than truth. Remarkable as it may seem, I can attest that the following events did occur, whether you believe them to be true or not. Welcome to Continuum Drag, the podcast that has turned our brains into onion dip. I'm Luke, here's my co-host Jordan. What's real, Jordan? Was that a line in this? I don't remember. Yeah, uh, I believe someone tells Kolchak his, his mind has been turned into onion dip. I mean, it's, it's an insult. I don't know if it's a good insult. I mean, you wouldn't like it if you got it. No, no one would, but I mean, I'd get over it, is what I'm saying. Save it for work, Jordan. Whip it out there. You love whipping <laughs> Try out tomorrow? these things at work. Yeah. It's not going to happen, but I could. I could. Theoretically, I could. <laughs> well, we're back from our Kolchak, and since we're getting close to the end of the series, we decided to bring a returning Kolchak guest back to talk about uh, Kolchak, comparing it to the start to the beginning. Welcome back, Jane, to the podcast. Thank you. I'm really excited to be back. I uh, had a great time on my first two Kolchak episodes, so I was looking forward to... Uh, to con- returning and and going at it again. Have you been keeping up with the Kolchak episodes? I haven't. I thought I was going to, but but I definitely have not. I think I tried to watch like one more episode after the ones that were on that we did together, but no. I've just skipped right over to these ones now. This is great news for me because we've got a brand new game we're going to try out this week. <laughs> Inaugural game, it's going to happen. Okay. It's the Jane game. Jordan, sing the theme song. How's that? Great, that's perfect for the Jane game. I'll cut something else in instead. I love it. Uh, What it is, is I'm going to quiz you, Jane. On Monsters of the Week, and you're going to tell me whether it's Kolchak, whether it's X-Files, or whether it's both. Oh, cool. I'll probably know if it's X-Files, but I definitely won't know if it's both. And Okay, yeah, wait, let's do it. I'm excited. As, as, our, as our X-Files, resident X-Files expert, I thought this would be an excellent way of uh, seeing what you can get. All right, so I've got I'm ready 11, to embarrass myself at this point. I've got 11 questions. So shall we begin? Okay. Was this a monster of the week on Kolchak, X-Files, or both? A robot. A robot. Well, what kind of robot? Because X-Files had like a cockroaches episode where there was like a robotic cockroach, but it, it wasn't really the monster of the week. It was just sort of a red herring. Um, so I'm going to go with Kolchak? That's correct. Okay. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> one point, Jane. Jordan, right. keep track of these points. Yeah, that's one. All right. Your next question. A moss man. Oh, there was definitely a moss man in the X-Files. I think there were actually a couple of moss men related episodes. Um, in the <laughs> That's first, odd. 
Well, in the first season, there was the Jersey Devil, which were like these kind of like, I don't know if the, you would these count as moss men, but they were like these sort of savage forest people, like kind of like a Bigfoot kind of characters. Um, and then there was a later episode, which I can't put my finger on, where like they basically went back to the same woods and it was kind of the same story. Um, and there was definitely a moss man. He like would camouflage himself into a tree and then like come out of the tree. Um, so I'm going to go with X-Files. Oh, I'm sorry, you're wrong. I'm talking about what? a man literally made of moss. Oh, okay. Well, I could have fun. clarified. So there was a Kolchak episode with a moss man? Yes, the Spanish moss murders. Oh, interesting. He was a Spanish oh. moss man. Yeah, he was from a Spanish Spain. moss man. Okay. You could tell from the accent. <laughs> All right, next up, a uh, pyrokinetic killer. There's 100% an X-Files episode with a pyrokinetic killer. So, but it's a very popular kind of trope of horror, um, including the uh, upcoming or recently released movie Firestarter, which I've heard is fantastic, guys, (laughs) just in case you want to go see it. Um, Lies. So I'm going to go with both. You are correct. It was both. That was the X-Files. The episode was called Fire. And on Kolchak, it was called Firefall. Nice. You know what's funny, Luke? I remember the X-Files episode, but I don't remember the Kolchak episode. To be fair, Jordan, he was also a ghost. He was a ghost and he was fire? Yeah, he's lit people on fire as a ghost. Hmm. Wow. Still can't remember. One of the best episodes of the show. Hmm. Anyway, we'll continue while Jordan mulls that over. So you're you're two for 11, Jane. Here's your Wait, next I'm not question. two for 11. You haven't asked me 11 You're, questions she's, yet. She's two for three. Yeah, but I mean, out of the 11 so far. No, I'm two for three. Let's let's get this straight. Off we go. <laughs> All right, Jane. The missing link. Well, okay. So, like I said, there's this episode called The Jersey Devil that was kind of like about these like savage people, forest Bigfoot people. Um So I'm going to I'm going to also say both. You're correct. It is yes. both. It was X-Files' Jersey Devil and Kolchak's Primal Scream. Ooh, very nice. Primal Scream. That sounds exciting. It was not that good. Oh. <laughs> All right, Jane. Your next question, Evil Computer. Oh, there was first there was totally Evil Computer in the X-Files. It was also a season 1 episode. Actually, there were several evil computer episodes but there was one that was killed people in an elevator in a building and then there was another one where the computer got possessed by a dead scientist and killed people inside of like a what's one of those rooms with a giant fan that um, oh, like a cherry springer set like a turbine room <laughs> Jerry springer set. um so that was, I would say, X-Files. And I don't think Kolchak is very computery. Like, there's not a lot of tech in there except for his typewriter. So X-Files. You're right. It's just X-Files. And you're right. Also, X-Files had three separate evil computer episodes. Right. What, was what about the, the one, one where they went into the video game? Does that count? Oh, yeah. I counted VR it. One. That's the, okay, so that's the third oh, one. Yeah. Yeah. It was, that, that episode was, sucked. Was not a good episode. It was Ghost in the Machine, the AI, and First Person Shooter. Nice. Yeah. All right, next up, Werewolf. Oh, there was for sure Werewolf episode in the X-Files. It was called Shapes. Um, (laughs) And 
I, there was a werewolf episode in Cold Jack. Didn't I do that episode? Or I watched it. Maybe it was. Anyway, it's both. Yeah, you're right. That's both. And you even knew the name of the episode of X-Files. I'm very impressed. Shapes. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Next up, Jack the Ripper. That sounds like Kolchak. I'm pretty sure there was no Jack the Ripper X-Files episode. Correct. That's There you go. Next up, Evil Tattoo. Oh, that was an X-Files episode. There was an evil tattoo. It was like a lady, and she like said seductive things and then forced this guy to kill people. X-Files. No, that's correct. You didn't go both. I like it. I like it. I remember that episode, too. It was weird. Wasn't it uh, Jodie Foster played the evil tattoo? Yes, that is totally correct. (laughs) Uh, Next up, Sea Monster. There was a Sea Monster X-Files episode. It was really funny. It was the episode where um, Scully got Queequeg, which was her dog for a while. Um, Anyway, so there was that one. And... I'm going to say that Kolchak may have also had a Sea Monster episode, so I'm going to go with both. I'm sorry. It was only the X-Files this time. You were correct, though. It was Quagmire, it was called. I, I, if the synopsis I read was correct, uh, Quigquag gets eaten in that episode. Oh, what's the episode where Quigquag dies? Oh, no. I got it backwards. I should say, though, you're right, Jane. It does feel like Kolchak should have had a sea creature episode, but weirdly they haven't. I guess because he'd have to leave those same streets he drives around all the time. I think, yeah, maybe the budget for water stuff was too much. But, like, Chicago's on the water. Like, there could be a sea monster in the harbor, like, in the docks of Chicago, in the industrial Maybe episode 20. Maybe. I mean, Jordan, he took that cruise, but he just fought a werewolf on that one. That's true. He did go on a cruise. That should, instead of werewolf, it should have been sea monster. All right. There was a werewolf on a cruise? Yeah, it was the best. I'm obsessed with that concept now. (laughs) (laughs) All right, next up, Zombie. Zombie. So there was an X Files zombie episode, and there was also a, a Kolchak one. So both. I'm gonna give it to you. I didn't actually find the X Files one, but I'm gonna believe you on this one. Yeah, but it's like based in like Haitian. It's like a Haitian zombie. Well, story. that's just like Kolchak. Then. It's there's 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 a guy, but it does he doesn't like walk like a zombie and attack people in that way. But I'll there's give a guy it to you. who comes You're back to expert. life. And anyways, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a great episode, but it exists. And finally, your last question. Inbred hillbillies. Oh, <laughs> that is very clearly an X-Files episode. That, ex- that episode was banned. I'm sure you read about this, Luke, and you knew about this, that it was banned from television after it aired. It was called Home. And it was only available to watch on the video or DVD collection of the X-Files if you bought it because it was considered to be... Yes, so I remember terrible. watching it live with my brother, and I was horrified, horrified. Yeah, I remember they going to bed, and it was like I couldn't go to sleep. Bed with and yeah. she's on the little rolly cart, and she has no arms and legs, and it was just like, yeah, it was terrible. Yeah, it's horrific. Yeah, um, but um, I'm going to say just the X Files for that one. Oh, this one's a trick question, <gasps> Jane. Why? How, so, how can it be a trick so question? So we might not count it in your total as because it's a trick question. It's a trick question because, yes, X-Files Home is correct. But one of the unproduced scripts for the final episodes of Kolchak was going to be about inbred hillbillies in the Appalachian Mountains he runs into. Oh, no way. But then they didn't make it. They didn't make it. It's only, I, it only I think Jane back. still gets the point for that one. I think I get a point because it is not a Kolchak episode. And it was probably banned. For, it was banned from television in 1994. Five, it was definitely banned from television in 1973 or whatever. That's true. I, I'm gonna. That's the 11th question, which we're just gonna discount entirely since it was a trick question. Okay. So at, out of 10, you got eight. Very good. 
very that was pretty good that was pretty good you, and the, I think most of the good. ones that I got wrong were ones that were were both. I didn't get any X Files ones wrong. No, you didn't. you didn't get you did, you you only were you got one wrong that was both, and then you were a little too liberal in what you thought a moss man was when you should have literally <laughs> oh, just thought of a man made of moss. Right. Fair enough. I'll take it. We yeah. always say that about you. You're a little too liberal with what you consider a moss man. <laughs> I have to be careful of that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, that was a fun. That was a fun game. That worked out all right. That was great. But let's get moving on to the episode. Here is the IMDb summary for episode seventeen: Legacy of Terror. Reporter Carl Kolchak investigates Chicago citizens having their hearts cut out by Aztecs. <laughs> that's yeah. that's kind of a spoiler for the episode. <laughs> right to the meat. This this synopsis. Right to I, the meat. I'm glad I didn't read that before I watched the episode. Hey, how much research do you think they put into uh, the uh, the costumes the people wear? How I think they went to Mardi Gras. Were? Yeah, <laughs> those were some. Yeah. Those look like kind of expensive costumes. Like they were quite elaborate. I'm sure Luke will describe them in his when we get to the part with the synopsis. But um, I re- I actually thought they were interesting. Like they weren't culturally accurate, but they were interest visually interesting. Yes, show. well, it, it begins, as most Kolchak episodes do, with a, a couple of murders. One is just we watch some stock footage of a football player running around, and Kolchak explains that one of the Chicago Bears linebackers has had his cart, heart cut out. That was – can I just interrupt? I'm sorry, right at the beginning. That was very weird that the first murder they didn't actually show. They just showed stock footage of a football game and stock footage of an ambulance driving, and Kolchak described it, and then they just went right to the second murder. Is that isn't that weird? Did, did any of the other it was episodes weird. of Kolchak they, they decided they needed two murders to start, but they couldn't film one of them. It was I thought the same thing. It was like I'm like, why just not have that be a murder then? Just have the guy you want to show get murdered. Yeah, or 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 put that murder second. Like start with the murder that you're going to have on screen, and then put the thing about the football player as the second murder. Right. It could even just be on the radio. You could hear about. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I'm not sure why either. And it, it seemed a shame because it was like, how great would it be to have a Chicago Bear uh, doing a cameo on this? <laughs> I do wonder, though, and, I, and I'll float this now, and it's a bit of a preview to what's coming this episode. But the conclusion of this episode all takes place in a hockey arena because they're like, it's got the tallest stairs in Chicago. I wonder if an early draft of this had the foot had them at the football st- like it was going to all tie back to this football stadium that they couldn't get they could they weren't allowed mm. to come into the football stadium yeah that's that's very possible because it was it, yeah the hockey arena and i was sort of like well i guess that's the only place they could get because the hockey arenas are not the largest stadiums like when they were talking about the reason yeah, who- why the highest stairs not a hockey place it's not going to be unless that's the only stadium that exists which it isn't so the the bears were like no way but the blackhawks were like get on in here (laughs) culture also that was a weird bit of uh information that kolchak picked up on that he's like i've noticed that all these all these people died on higher and higher staircases i was like man i never would have noticed that yeah but that's pretty seems to be pretty common for Kolchak. He jumps to the conclusions that he needs to jump to in order to yeah. get us to the end because we only have forty five minutes. Yeah, exactly. 
But let's talk about the second murder that we do see. It's a, it's a staff sergeant back from Vietnam. He's leaving his job as a recruiter for the army. And he hears something odd in the stairwell as he walks by. He sticks his head in. And these people in very flamboyant costumes, a panther, uh, a parrot of some sort. Uh, and they start uh, ripping his heart out. <laughs> they just come at him. And there's like a fluty kind of noise music like like this flute and then there's a shadow of a guy with like a beak on and a hat and then these sort of flashes of these feather arms coming at him and then they have this like very weird little panther arm like this kind of spotted paw that is like it's like it's like they put a prop on a stick and then they're they put it up to his chest and they're pulling he's they're pulling at his church and it rips open and then i think he has a little scratch down his chest i guess i liked the uh the flute music every time anyone dies in this just like real life if you hear a flute and you're not (laughs) expecting it you're gonna die it is a whole to do right to have to have a a flautist come out when you're doing a murder yeah i think at some point we should talk about this ritual and what it actually entails because it's definitely quite labor intensive it's expensive yeah there's a lot of people involved yeah i mean we can have a little chat about it like it appears to be a group of what five to six people in flamboyant Mm -hmm. costumes will cut the heart out of a uh i guess a strong person but what we learned at the end is they're all in the olden times it would have been a warrior is unwillingly dying so in this case it's a football player and a war hero that's the equivalent in modern times and for whatever reason, the heart also has to be cut out with a very blunt knife. Like, that is made very clear to us. It's like, mm, it looks like it was real hard to cut this heart out. You gotta earn it. And, Jordan, and I think this is what you were talking about a little bit earlier. Each successive murder, and this is what Kolchak will notice, is when the victim dies, the heart is left on the stairs below the victim, but at lower and lower stair duration. So, five, seven, nine. They, right, It just right. keeps getting left at a lower stair. <laughs> It's a very, very specific thing that he's noticing this about the heart. And he notices it the very first time when he sees the first murder victim that he counts the number of how many steps below the body is the heart. And he counts down. And who would think to do that? Well, only Kolchak, apparently. Also, I don't think they ever give us any explanation for why the heart is left at a lower staircase other than it just is no it's a ritual that's all you ever have to say in any of these you just do whatever you want and then you say oh it's a ritual you're good anyway kolchak at this point doesn't know about any of these murders he's actually running late to join vincenzo and updike at a publisher's conference at a high-end hotel Mm -hmm. and there's a very long sequence in which vincenzo and updike are like walking around like wondering where kolchak is there's a whole thing made about like what time is it is it greenwich mean time or real time it doesn't matter he's still late then they wander out of the lobby of the hotel to the front door just as kolchak is pulling up in his car and then kolchak gets out of his car gives it to the valet starts to walk towards the door of the hotel and then his police radio goes off And he's just like, never mind, I gotta go. And he turns around and he takes the car back from the valet and just drives away. And Vincenzo and Updeck are just left standing there being like, what the hell is going on? It was a cute sequence, actually. I I enjoyed it because I don't don't even know if Kolchak says anything up until the moment he, like, hits the gas in his car and drives away. It's like a weirdly silent moment for Kolchak. 
Also, I, I noticed something that uh, apparently Updike in this episode, he tells Vincenzo he's decided to uh, start smoking the pipe as an affectation to make him look self look smarter. Jordan, I think you should consider it. Yeah. I sure, thought I of you, it. Jordan, as well. Oh, really? I, yes, with the pipe. I was like, this is something that Jordan could do. Because, yeah, he, he describes how people thought that it made him seem more approachable. <laughs> oh, it will make me more approachable? That's, yeah. So I'm, tr- I'm trying to help you out. See, that's how it works. Okay. <laughs> I could get invited to more parties, am I right? Consider it, Jordan. It might be a good thing for you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I didn't realize I was so unapproachable I needed an affectation, but I'll, I'll take the note. At any rate, the uh, the radio, what he hears in the police radio is there's a 187. He's basically off to see that crime scene that we described with the dead staff sergeant. And this is where he goes and sees the, the body and the heart, and he's sort of now on the case of this odd murder. And... This, you know, he'll go to the, it's very funny. He goes to visit the murder and he just turns his car around and goes back to the convention. So I, it was like a real quick, we get him there and then we get him back immediately. And when he gets back to the convention, uh, Vincenzo is introduced to a, uh, sorry, Vincenzo introduces Kolchak to a Captain Timmons, the first woman to qualify for combat in the U.S. Air Force. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she she was interesting. So they basically go on this thing about how they're trying to drum up opportunity or trying to drum up press about opportunities for women in the Air Force and how, you know, she's qualified for all of these things, but she's not actually in combat yet. And they do point that out. It's like, yeah, she's qualified, but has, she hasn't had combat yet. And also everyone keeps talking over her. And at one point, the other woman who's there, who I think is the PR lady, is like, maybe one of you should let her finish the sentence if you think she's so great, basically. And the woman's like, thank you. Because they were just, they just kept interrupting her. I really like that because in the last several episodes of Kolchak we've seen, he's been a real problematic with women of late. And I thought, I was like, I'm like, oh, it's nice of them to have a writer come in and like have this great bit where they acknowledge like, Vincenzo and this other like uh, major are just perpetually talking over this woman. Yeah, and there's actually a whole bunch of stuff in this episode that's kind of a little bit about like women in the workplace and like the role of women and men, and so much so that I actually, and as we go, I'll talk about this, but like I was really actually surprised by the unfolding of this episode a bunch of stuff happened that i didn't expect was going to happen that i didn't see coming mostly i think because i was preoccupied by like the feminist bent that the episode was taking and was enjoying it and making notes on it and then i was blindsided by like some of the twists in a good way and so i i really enjoyed the episode because i found it less predictable than some of the other ones well, who who comes along next is more important in this scene because uh, wandering by is the hotel's new vice president and his entourage of all female staff. Um, and of course, we see him because he mistakes that uh, Air Force major for some sort of concierge. So we're, we get the idea that this gentleman named uh, Mr. Pepe Torres is a bit of a a bit of a dumb guy. He's kind of looks like like he's kind of got that surfer attitude, but he's got a real nice leisure suit on. Eric Estrada. It's freaking Eric Estrada, and I was yeah. so excited. But again, like it didn't occur to me that he might actually have a part in this episode. I was just like, oh, it's Eric Estrada early in his career in a walk-on role. Like I just figured. He was playing like because because there had just been like comments about there was they were talking about feminism and stuff. And then he came in and was kind of a bit of a misogynist to the lady, the Air Force lady. I I sort of was like just fooled by that being the purpose of the interaction. I didn't like gauge that he was going to have a bigger part in the story. So when he reappeared later, I was genuinely surprised that he had a bigger part. 
anyway, it was fun. Yes, this uh, this Pepe Torres will end up playing a big role in it. It's a very odd introduction for sure. I did not know what to make of it because they were like, he's the vice president. I'm like, okay. And you can tell that the other staff don't like him. But what happens once we leave this scene is uh, this Captain Timmons has gone back up to her hotel room. And as she's getting ready for bed, she hears the ominous sounds of a flute playing. <laughs> and it, 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 to know, be fair, that is a bad sign. Yeah, I mean, it's not what you want when you're about to go to bed in a hotel. Yeah. Like the guy next to you starts playing the flute. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but Kolchak soon hears about another murder on his police scanner and arrives at another staircase. This one a ways away from the hotel, only to find Captain Timmons with her heart cut out and her and left like nine steps below her body. And as, as Kolchak's kind of like snapping photos of the uh, gruesome crime scene, uh, the parrot costume man shows up and shoves him off the staircase, knocking him unconscious. <laughs> yeah, so she yeah. she's in the hotel and she, she her room gets broken into by a bird man, but then we don't see her murdered and then she's discovered murdered on the staircase. So presumably they took her to the staircase in order to murder her and do this thing, which I to me is like that was really the first tip off that there was the staircase was a thing because the earlier murder the guy had just been like leaving the building and maybe he decided to take the stairs and was killed on the stairs but this one it was like oh no they didn't kill her in a room they took her to this other location and they couldn't find any stock footage of stairs for the football player so yeah maybe that was it they just maybe they <laughs> shot the whole thing and they're like damn it we don't have any stairs oh well cut it out <laughs> um but Colchak's eventually woken by paramedics at the scene, and he manages to have grabbed a handful of feathers, which will come in handy later. But he, So he, now he knows something's really up, and he returns to the hotel and hoping to beat the police back to Captain Timmons' room because he's not sure that she's, a, that she's been identified by them yet. Unfortunately, when he gets there, the police have already cordoned off her room. So much like other Colchak episodes we've seen, he's like, all right, I'll just find a like bellhops costume or a busboy costume and I'll just sneak past the police and then sneak into a room. He does this all the time. It's very common. But they put a twist on the formula this time because as he's trying to get there, Vincenzo and Updike are there for the conference. And as he's walking by, they're like, what are you doing, Kolchak? Why are you dressed like a busboy? And really blow his cover. <laughs> and then the cop's like, he's one of yours and then chases him out of the out of the room. Yeah, that was, I, I feel like when I was sort of watching this, I was sort of feeling like, Kolchak had kind of found its feet in terms of some of the comedy beats that I think work well with it. There was an earlier beat that um, I didn't want to interrupt you, so I didn't mention it. But when he goes to the first murder scene with the with the guy in the staircase, um, the, the army guy in the staircase, they're shooting. They have a shot of the staircase and the dead guy and the blood. And there's two cops and they're sitting over the body and they're talking about, oh, it looks like his heart was cut out. And then just in the corner of the frame, this tape recorder like comes is lowered down into the right upper right corner of the frame next to the police and is just sitting there for like a beat or two. And then the police notice it and they go, hey, and it's Kolchak and he's up on the staircase above and he's like recording. But it was just funny. Like it was just like this cute little quirky, funny moment that i thought was great and clever and kind of in exactly the right vibe for i think i think what this show ought to be yeah no i agree it's i i agree i think i think this episode well still not one of the better episodes of kolchak i think the tones way it's, it's on the mark kolchak's being funny like even the scene here where he gets spotted by Vincenzo and Optic. We've seen him change so many times and pull the same scam so many times. It was a nice way to keep it fresh, and it was a funny reversal of how it usually goes. So I really liked it. 
And like you said, the cop obviously is like sees them talking. He's like, "Hey, you're not. You don't work here." And chases chases Kolchak downstairs. Where I don't think we see this often on TV when someone dresses up in costume. But Kolchak actually goes to where he hid his own original clothing and has to grab it out of like a bin. Yeah, and gets changed. Yeah, puts it puts his regular jacket back on and his hat. Um, but it, it involves him running and hiding in a in a closet or a storage area to get away from this cop. And while he's in the storage area, he finds a big painting with a. Uh, man in a, in a in a parrot outfit he's like oh this is just like the thing i saw and he turns around and he finds a sarcophagus and as he like pulls the mask off of the body in the sarcophagus which i don't know what he thought was going to be under there but he's terrified to find a like mummified body and then he finds himself locked in the storage room that he's that he's been hiding out in and so has to bang like a crazy person on the inside of the door being like let me out of here let me out of here and so then he is promptly like the next shot is like him being detained by security because obviously he gave himself away and now he's been caught. Does no one else that works in the hotel, no one else has gone into this storage room to see this coffin or whatever? Well, no, the lady. So when he's coming downstairs, running away from the cop, he goes in, he goes kind of in one direction down a hallway. And then this other lady who's coming out, it's one of the, it's one of the women, one of Pepe's women which mm-hmm. we, we don't know that yet, but she's like a very attractive blonde lady. And she's been coming in out of the storage room and she's the one who actually locks it. And Kolchak runs in and she turns back around and locks it and then leaves. So I'm gathering that the storage room is kind of the purview of... Right, Pepe. it's a little off limits. Yeah, it's well, it's the VP, like Pepe's little storage room. And he's kind of in charge of what goes on there. And I'm just saying it's very hard to take him seriously with the name Pepe. <laughs> Here's the thing. It's, I only ever heard him referred to by the staff as Mr. Torres, Torres, and then Kolchak kept calling him Pepe. I'm not sure if that was not just Pep, uh, Kolchak like, giving him a slurring nickname. No, I don't think so. I thought his name was Pepe Torres. Am I wrong? Maybe it was. Maybe I only ever heard anyone call him Mr. Torres. I'll, I'll look it up. In, in all my notes, I just wrote Eric Estrada. <laughs> I wrote either VP or Pepe most of the time. Usually but. PP. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you're right. It's a very great sequence. And it's like, like you're saying, the tone is really good for Kolchak here is he's immediately a coward banging at a door, begging to get locked out, which means he's immediately caught for being down there. The When we get a hard cut and the police have dragged him up to the public relations person of the hotel to like ask if she wants to press charges against him. She seems to have a soft spot for Kolchak because he's a bit of a, you know, he's a, he's a ne'er-do-well, but he's a he's a kind one. So she kind of, like, gives him a pass. She's like, I don't worry about it, cops. Well, I'm going to let him go for this one. And Kolchak uses this moment to talk to her and ask about the uh, that vice president. What's up with your vice president, Pepe? You don't seem to like him earlier in the episode. And she kind of goes on to say, off the record, that he's a bit of an idiot. And, like, for whatever reason, the owners installed him as VP a year ago. And it was really out of the blue. And, and she's, you know, and it's kind of this thing of Kolchak's like, oh, it's really weird since you're competent that you would be like not promoted. And she's like, yes, it is weird, isn't it? And I still thought this was another subplot about how women don't get recognized for their work, just like the Air Force lady. And so I was still like completely focused on this part of the story. And I thought it was interesting and cool. And so it still didn't occur to me that there was something actually weird about Mr. Torres. I was just like, oh, yeah. She should have got promoted, but she didn't because she's a lady. And that's where I left it. <laughs> both things can be true. They both definitely can be true. But um, yeah, I certainly wasn't as wise to the to this, to plot as uh, Kolchak seemed to be. And let me just note that uh, 
uh, uh, Eric Estrada's character is in fact Pepe Torres. Okay, good. According to who? IMDb. Well, that seems trustworthy. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, uh, Kolchak goes uh, across the hall. He's just like, you know what? I really got to meet this VP, this, this Pepe Torres character. And he sort of barges into the VP's office where Pepe's just sitting there practicing the murder flute with his uh, really in this scene as he walks in. It's like he's really got a Manson-esque cabal of female staff around him. Yeah, this was where I was finally like, oh, he's the flute guy. Like, I, I just did not, I did not realize until that moment that he was the flute guy. And that, and then, of course, he had all of these women around him. Like, okay, there's some sort of, you know, witchy kind of magic that's supposed to be happening with with him and the flute and stuff. And um, yeah, but that was, I was way behind the eight ball on this plot. I love that Kolchak like flat out comes out and he's just like, hey, what's up with the storage room down there without mummy locked in it? <laughs> And like they, you know, they, they, they eject him from the room, but no one involved in this whole, this cult at all seems to be all that concerned that Kolchak like saw that mummy. They're just like, ah, just get out of here, buddy. They're like, they have no concerns about Kolchak whatsoever. And even walking into the lines and admitting he's seen everything. Well, how many murders are they away at this point for, I'm going to say it for lack of better term, but like fulfilling the prophecy. Well, or, they've or done fulfilling the three tradition. at this point. They've done the two, the football player, the army man, and the Air Force lady. Right. And how many do they have to do? Five? Five. But as we find out, the fifth one is a special murder, which right. we'll get to. Kolchak, of course, is he's, you know, he's a bit of a dead end. So he what he does, he's like, I've got this handful of feathers I grabbed off that parrot costume. So the only thing I can do is go visit an expert on parrots, which is a taxidermist who he's hoping will tell him where these feathers came from, which is a stretch, I thought. But sure. OK. Now, in terms of the people that Kolchak has gone to, this was not one of the best ones, but it's not the worst. Like. But it's it's in classic tradition of him is that like if he if he's starting to think this is I don't even know at this point if he thinks it's an Aztec type murder. He doesn't go to speak to some sort of proper authority. He always goes to some odd, you know, area. He's like, I'm going to talk to a locksmith who wants to uh, rent an apartment to a Mexican. You're like, uh, OK, sure. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, a part of it, I think, is. I think the impression that I get with Col- a lot of Kolchak's interrogations, and now you guys have seen more episodes than me, is like he he's going to people that are already disaffected and disgruntled because those people will be more likely to help him out, either because they have they just feel like they need to have their story told or they feel like they want to be listened to, or because they're broke and he can bribe them. So <laughs> he he. I guess I'm guessing that's why he doesn't go to like, oh, I'm going to go to an ornithologist and find out what this this feather is. It's like, I'm going to go to a taxidermist. And immediately upon arriving at the taxidermist, the taxidermist comes in swinging. Like the taxidermist is sure that Kolchak is there to discredit him, to make fun of him, to mock him and his profession the way that journalists of the past have like discredited taxidermists and used you know infantilized them by using terms like stuffed animal like he goes on this rant and then Kolchak has to be like oh no I really respect taxidermy and the guy's like oh you do well in that case let me tell you about how honorable I think this profession is and then he goes on a rant about how the original 
people who who created Egyptian mummies were like the original great taxidermists of the world and how being an undertaker is a branch of taxidermy and has this whole kind of yeah thing that he goes on about to Kolchak and so then Kolchak's like okay I think I can get some information out of this guy um, it sounds like the guy had thought about it before you know he was ready to go. He was ready to go. Well, that's what I said. That's what I mean. He's been like, he's been disaffected by society and he's not feeling great about, you know, himself or other people. And so he's easily manipulated by Kolchak's wily ways. Yeah. I mean, that tax dermis knows what's up. Not to listen to the lamestream media. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I think what you said, though, is co- completely correct. And I think it's, I think the reason he goes to taxidermist this episode is more for plot purposes in some ways. Because the taxidermist can then be linked to mummification, which is going to link it back to learning that this these parrot feathers are from southern Mexico. And the taxidermist, since he's into mummification of humans, is going to be like, well, you know who is great at that? Aztecs. And that's sort of allowing them to kill a few birds with one stone in the case mm-hmm. of this scene. Yeah, and, it, and it's actually... I, I'm guessing this was at a time where there was probably a little bit less public awareness about, you know, j- about the like ancient history in Mexico and Central America, because I think they really spent quite a bit of time sort of trying to link Aztecs with Egyptian mythology so that people would feel like, understand that it was kind of the same. Oh, we're, we're living in the same world of like mummification and rituals and mummies waking up and that sort of thing. But this time it's in Mexico. Exactly, exactly. And of course, Kolchak will then, with this information, sort of start investigating the hotel chain because he learns that um, it's originally from Mexico and that uh, if he looks into papers around around the uh, places, this this hotel has chained, like they have a, it's a hotel chain, so they have hotels everywhere. But it seems that every 52 years, there seems to be a string of murders where five victims get their hearts cut out in and around sort of this hotel chain that has originated in Mexico. What I like, though, is that this it's around here, either before or after, where he goes back to the office to kind of pitch his story that he's putting together for Vincenzo. And even for Cold Chick episodes, like the leaps of logic he has to make to make this story make sense, even though, of course, Kolchak is correct and it is this Aztec, Aztec tradition. Um uh, for these murders, it's like Vincenzo's just like you're losing it. Like this is this is too much even for you. And I I almost feel like it was the writers kind of putting in that like we know how ridiculous this is. Even everyone else would think it's ridiculous except for Kolchak. And I thought that was kind of a nice little point. Yeah, there were a couple of of beats of that, and there was also another funny beat where I was like, this is exactly the right tone where. Kolchak, in order to get all of the information he needs from the taxidermist, of course, he has to agree to buy something. So in the next scene, we have like the scene opens with like Vincenzo, like staring at this ugly ass taxidermed mouse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, basically Kolchak is asking Vincenzo to sign off on like the petty cash voucher so that he can get reimbursed for buying this weird mouse and then then Vincenzo says get it out of here and so Kolchak goes and hides it on like inside of a book on Updike's desk and then there's a whole (laughs) gag where Updike like wanders into the office and sits down and lifts up this piece of paper and then like is madly startled by this taxidermed mouse under his and it and it's just and it's all done like he doesn't say anything it's just all kind of it's like a bit of a silent film gag almost where he comes in and finds this mouse and I thought it was funny they had a nice, they had quite a few nice little like bits with the whole office cast this episode where you kind of just, 
it's what they do really well but never enough uh, i think in my opinion is like when they bring the other characters in the office into it it like it's always more fun yeah and and we've said it a million times and it's and it's we just know it's not going to happen it's episode 18 or 17 or whatever it is now and it hasn't happened yet it's not going to happen but the show is desperate for some team-ups and even at the beginning of this episode again i thought hey vincenzo and ron updike are here at the hotel maybe they're going to get involved in this action in some way and have something to do with the plot or there'll be that thing of they get to see kolchak and his weird world but the show just is desperate not to do that so it's like yeah they're there in mexico too anyway you know and it's just like why why not have them be part of it and it just we've seen it time and time again that for whatever reason it's kolchak a solo it doesn't matter no matter if it makes sense or not he's he's a solo character yeah I, yeah, it's interesting because I, I, I sort of thought that there might be, yeah, something more involved as well because they set up this whole conference and so, okay, people are going to be around. But um, yeah, I guess maybe it's just just that kind of old school television thinking where it's like, no, it's just about Kolchak. Let's just stick with him. Yeah. And stick with them. It does. As he uh, continues his investigation, he'll, uh, he knows about Mexico and the parrots now. So he heads to the Mexican consulate to get, try to get more details where so funny the guy who works at consul is like i don't know man i i deal with business development i don't know what you want from me well the uh, cultural like, attache was like away and wasn't yes. coming back for a while which i don't think they ever really resolved that but this is one of my questions going through this is is like who is it that's actually performing this ritual because there's like five guys and it's and we'll, so, we'll never meet them but is no, one that of was them weird, the right? cultural attache this I'm curious about, and I we can only speculate because we have no idea who these are. But the cultural attaché was not there, and well, well that's right because I thought it was going to be that they were, uh, for lack of a better terms, like zombies or spirits, or they had been brought in in some sort of weird, mysterious, mystical way, not just like dudes that are into it. But I think that they we were never just we never learn about into it. I'm get yeah. I I think. It's so you can be scared because it could be your friends and neighbors. Could be anyone. I guess so. Put no, on it, some parrot costume. I think they do explain, ultimately, it's the owners of the hotel chain. We just never meet them. Oh, I see. Because um, what happens is he goes to the, the, the consulate. They can't help him, but they say, hey, there's an, there's an exhibit of myths and mysteries of ancient Mexico getting put on by a local university professor. Why don't you go talk to him? They, Kolchak goes there, and I really like this university professor. He could not be less interested in talking to Kolchak at all. <laughs> Kolchak just kind of annoys him into, like, talking to him. He just wants Kolchak to sign up for his courses. He's like, here's my brochure. Come sign up for one of my courses. There, there are some other professor there who's, like, starving for attention, though, and keeps begging Kolchak to write about his department. I think it was, like, physics or something. <laughs> yeah, there's also this undercurrent theme of, like, reporting versus PR, which comes up a few times. It comes up in the, one of the early scenes in the hotel when Kolchak is meeting the Air Force lady, and Vincenzo is like, you should write a piece on, on her. She's really amazing. She's done all these things. And Kolchak is like, I don't do PR. Then obviously he has a couple of scenes with the lady who does PR for the hotel, like the PR lady. And then there's this other beat when they're at the um, this exib- exhibition where these other professors in like the physics department or some other thing are like, our funding's getting cut. Can you write articles for us to kind of drum up support? So it was kind of interesting. I, I wanted to ask you guys if you had seen that undercurrent in any other Kolchak episodes of like, 
obviously he does a different type of reporting than Vincenzo would want him to do. But like this idea of this sort of commercial PR type of storytelling versus real reporters. Is that a thing? I don't I don't know if I've thought of I've seen a, I know there was an episode where Vincenzo is really pushing that he only write positive stories because people only want happy news. That's not really PR, though. So I don't know. Luke, I, I can't think of any. Can you? I mean, I can think of times he's been assigned a profile or he has to write the obituaries. Like, he seems to be assigned to things that he does not want to do. And I think occasionally there has been the case where it's like, can you go write about this new hospital that's opening that is a little more on the PR reporting side? I think this episode in particularly really leaned into the, like, profile piece as, as like, propaganda versus actually doing reporting. Like, this episode, I think, really had that undercurrent. But I don't think it's necessarily been the theme other than to say that Kolchak wants to write what Kolchak wants and he doesn't care to be assigned things right right yeah okay so that's that's what I thought I think maybe just on account of it being the conference and stuff it was just something that the writer sort of was inserting in a few places but I thought it was yeah I mean I think it flows well with the with the bait like the kickoff of the story it kind of fits in with the themes of it so it makes sense uh, Jordan, this I know is one of your favorite uh, Kolchak tropes here is while he's pestering that uh, professor to get him to talk about uh, Mexican history with him. Kolchak happens to see a painting on the wall that is exactly the thing that he's looking for, which I think is it's the at least the third time. It might be the fourth time where he's literally it's always it's a painting. He sees a painting that sort of ties things together for him. It's funny. It's a funny thing that this show has chosen to do. Well, this was the second time in this episode that he's seen a painting. That's true. That's true because he saw one in the in the little uh, the room he gets stuck in, right? Yeah, yeah. But with this painting, the professor finally starts talking to him, and I'm gonna really break down the whole explanation for how this is all working for everyone at home. So bear with me, everyone. Essentially, what Kolchak learns is that. In Aztec myth, there was a good god and an evil god who I'm not going to attempt to pronounce their names, but they had a battle. That battle ended in a draw, and the and a cult sprung up toward the the you know the ends of the evil god. And um, the last major wa- leader of that cult was a warrior who lost uh, the last major battle against the Spanish and had himself mummified afterward, with the request to be brought back at the end of the millennium, brought back to life. Um, and the cult has since then been, uh, I guess, fulfilling his wishes to uh, f- to bring the evil god back for, I guess, probably an apocalypse in the year 2027. And that is 52 years from the time of this episode, essentially. So the murders Crazy. happen every 52 years. And 52 years from this period of time of Kolchak is going to be the end of the world. And um, that is because, as the professor explains, the Aztec calendar works on a 52-year cycle. Um, so... This is all repeating. This is we've seen this in Kolchak before. Uh, repeating like loops with these evil characters, and Kolchak just has to be coming in when it's kicking up again. And of course, what they do every fifty-two years is the mummy kind of just needs to be fed every fifty-two years in the lead up to twenty twenty-seven, and uh, that involves a sacrifice of, um, as we've said, five people, four unwilling victims who are warriors, and then one willing victim of great physical beauty who will be treated like a god for a year. And must learn to play the flute. <laughs> I have to say, I know this was kind of a huge exposition dump scene and it like kind of had to happen to explain things. But compared to some of the other episodes, I thought it was at least at least it made sense. Like comparing this to Jane, you didn't see this, but the the motorbike episode, like 
the leaps of logic they had to make to make that sen- make sense of why he was cutting people's heads off now. It was like, what? At least this is like, you, you get the timeline, you know? It, it at least lines up in that sense. Yeah, it was definitely overly complicated. And of course, it doesn't help that like a lot of Aztec names are really difficult to pronounce and remember. So that made the whole speech just kind of a mouthful for the person who the actor was doing it as well um but i think you get the you get the gist of it luke got a lot more than i did but the gist of it which is that like stuff is happening in 52 year cycles and this mummy is waking up every 52 years and needs to get fed and there's a ritual that feeds him and there have to be five people and that was was like okay what's going on absolutely and they're up to three victims but that night the cult kills again and cuts the heart out of a hero cop and it was the same hero cop that Kolchak met in the hallway when he tried to pretend to be the bellboy. It was the it was the guy he's like, because before he pretends to be the bellboy, he just tries to get in and he offers, again on the PR theme, he offers to, he's like, you just won a medal of honor. I was at the ceremony where I saw you in that medal. I offered to, I'll offer to write you an article, a, a two-part article if you want. And the guy's like, no, I don't want an article about me. Get away. And then Kolchak comes back as the bellboy and then gets found out. It's that exact same cop who's driving by so there's this downtown street with a woman who like to me looked like she was in a nightgown but I guess it was supposed to be an evening dress and she's standing next to a car with its hood up you know presumably in some kind of distress that her car is broken down and so this cop pulls up and uh it's it's a trap and he is attacked and murdered by the flute people did you do you remember why he's a hero cop oh I don't remember he has a medal of honor for Shoot, no, I don't. Why? I think he just shot somebody. I don't think he was a hero at all. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. They, I, at some point, they say that's like, oh yeah, I remember there was like that robbery. You just shot that guy. You were so we got that at Medal of Honor. I'm like, I'm I'm not sure that that's a hero move. Oh, I didn't catch that. I didn't realize that was why. I mean, it just was very funny. Where it just like he was named a hero for killing a man. I'm like, okay, well, this is part of the problem we have in 2022. <laughs> Yeah, and at he, any was, rate. he was supposed to make a speech at a local school, and he was very nervous about it, but never fear. I really want to know what that speech was. It was just like, he was running, his back was to me, and I was very afraid of that back. I got to tell you that right now. It was very threatening back to me. I was People always said I had an itchy finger. I just proved it. Oh. But he never had to make the speech because he died instead. Got his heart cut out with a dull blade instead. <laughs> the butter knife. Um... Kolchak, at any rate, has continued his research now that he's kind of learned all about this evil god and these sacrifices, etc., etc. And his own personal research has kind of brought him to the fact that this last sacrifice is going to have to happen tonight before 1210. Because at 1210, Venus will rise in the sky, and Venus is the representation of the good Aztec god who, who destroys the evil Aztec god. So unless the evil Aztec god gets his sacrifice for 12, 1210... It won't. He won't complete the ritual. The cult will not be successful. And uh, Kolchak realizes, like, to figure this out, I'm going to have to go to the highest staircase in Chicago to stop him. Um, and it leads to a really weird scene where he's trying to go through Col- uh, Vincenzo's Rolodex to find, like, a, a city planner to ask the city planner where the highest staircase is. It was very, like, he goes, it, it was just a weird way to get the exposition out is because Kolchak needs to tell somebody 
what he has figured out in order to let the audience know. And so they've created this scene where he's at the office and he's rifling through Vincenzo's desk, basically looking at Vincenzo's contact list. And Vincenzo comes and he's like, what are you doing? And then Kolchak explains everything. And this is another scene, Jordan, like you were describing where Vincenzo's like, what? You're insane. And it does sound kind of insane. And then Kolchak's like, so I need this guy's number. And Vincenzo's like, no, you can't have it. So he never gets the number. He never gets to call the guy, but he suspects that the highest staircase in Chicago is in the sports stadium. So rather than confirm his suspicion by making this phone call, he just goes to the sports stadium anyway. Well, it's an odd thing because this show has these like expository scenes every now and then, but they also have the tool of the voiceover. So it's like it could have, I'm not saying it would have worked better, but it works if, if the whole point of the scene was just to give that info dump. You could have just had him driving on the street and going, anyways, I found out it's the biggest staircase from uh, old Johnny Tutu, and he told me, so here I go. That's it true. It works just as well, right? Yeah, that is true. I never thought of that. Strange. But you love the expository scenes. You're always talking about how much you enjoy them. Yeah. <laughs> it, sometimes, it, you know what? If you don't notice it, it works well. But if, you, if you're as a viewer sitting there going, why are they just giving all this information here? you know, with seven minutes left, you notice it's because, oh, they've just run out of time and they didn't do a good job of planting it as the episode went. Yeah, it was very late in the episode. I think having an expository scene around the halfway point is usually good, but we already had, like we talked about, we already had one of those this episode. So it's like having another one just seemed a little bit, especially when it didn't amount to anything. Yeah, and it's immediately after the last exposition scene too. So they're pretty quick and fast, but essentially just gets him to the hockey arena and, He'll wander around and finally see some of these, like, a- this Aztec cult walk out of a room. So he goes in there and finds uh, the vice president, Pepe, preparing to sacrifice himself for the cult. He's, like, drinking a, a thing of painkillers to prepare himself. And um, Pepe kind of explains, yeah, yeah, yeah. They installed me as vice president a year ago, giving me everything I wanted. I've had a great time. And Kolchak obviously, is like, don't do it, man. Don't kill yourself. Like, it's not worth it. And I really like that Pepe is just like, he's like, a deal's a deal. I said I'd do it, and I'm going to do it. No, and not only that, he basically says, I've done it so... Well, it's a couple of reasons. He said, I'm basically going to get anything I want for this year. And I've lived a year that people very seldom get. I've had all these women, and I've had all this money, and I've had all these various entertainment things. So I've got everything I want, and I now have enough money to give to my family, so I know they're going to be uh, fine for the rest of my life. So for me, it's kind of... It's fine. And, and it's an interesting argument to make is that that's the reason he's 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 willing. It's like, well, I got what I wanted out of it. Yeah, and he also describes how he came from poverty. And he's like, I probably would have been killed. It was interesting. He's like, I probably would have been killed by the cops when, I, you know, pretty soon anyway, which I was sort of like, well, that's that's pretty, pretty big deal. Um, and he would have ended up being a box boy. And I was like, what's a box boy? I was like, a stock boy? Like somebody who restocks warehouses is that what a box I guess boy so. is yeah i guess i think that's what it was boy. yeah so he, he he didn't want to be a box boy and he wanted his mom to be looked after so it was like i sort of felt for the guy this is sort of the first time that he actually this character actually sort of appears to have any kind of personality or soul besides you to see eric estrada flex those acting muscles that's right besides being just kind of a douche which he was for most of the episode um, but it's great too because like the cult comes back in, catches Kolchak with Pepe, and 
Pepe's like, obviously, he's not been sacrificed yet. So he's like, hey, hey, don't worry, Kolchak. I'll tell, like, he just nods at them. They're like, okay, we won't touch this guy. And he's like, don't worry, Kolchak. As long as I'm alive, they won't kill you. Let's go get sacrificed. (laughs) (laughs) But it mostly is just to give a reason why they would drag Kolchak along to the sacrifice. Yeah. And, like, they climb all of these hockey stairs. They climb so many hockey stairs up to the sacrificial altar, which is a table that's in front of another table that has the mummy on it. Yep, and then there's two other guys there, and what is the flute? One of the guys is pl- now. This time, Pepe is not playing the flute. There's another guy playing the flute. I guess you can't be sacrificed and play a flute. <laughs> Pepe only gets to play the flute for the other four deaths. He is not That's allowed right. to play himself out. I mean, it's a hard job being a hotel owner and being a shareholder. You got all these board meetings at night. Yeah, cutting out all these hearts. <laughs> um, but as sort of. Pepe lays down on the table to get sacrificed and Kolchak kind of like half-heartedly is just like, you can still be anything you want, even if it is a box boy. And really apropos to nothing, Pepe's just laying there as they're like pulling the, putting their like knife above his chest. And then he's just like, you know what, man, I'm not, not going to do it. And he just hops on the table and kind of like scuttles off down the road. And like all the cult members, like at some sort of like three stooges sketch, all like, freak out and start chasing after him down the road it's very funny just like they all just run out of the scene together they all yeah Yeah. they all just bounce leaving kolchek by himself with the mummy sarcophagus there yeah yeah and i guess i don't know kolchek like falls down the stairs and like hurts his ankle or something i don't know who cares it is all just so that the mummy can like get up and it's like it's a slowly make his way over yeah it's a cool mummy character because it's like it looks really mummified. They did a like nice job on the makeup on this on this actor. He like pulls out a sword and like takes a swing at Kolchak, and uh, Kolchak dodges it, and then the mummy disappears. And Kolchak's like looking at his watch to figure out, it's like, is it twelve ten yet? I can't decide. And it's and it's mostly just a setup. I guess the mummy's gonna like reappear for a second, take another swing at him, and Kolchak will duck that one, and then he'll be like, oh, I guess my watch is a little fast. <laughs> yep. Yeah, because then the mummy's legit gone, and it's after twelve ten, and that's the end. And the other guys, the other guys never come back. Nobody comes back for the box or anything. I do find we mentioned this on very very early on, Luke, uh, that you know they liked setting up villains in this show that sort of are uh, that seem to be undefeatable. There are these huge powerhouse kind of figures, and so he has to come up with creative ways to beat them and i think they've sort of just ran out of ideas because the last couple episodes it seems like they just kind of wilt at the end like it's just like like this is just like all right time's up and then even the next episode it's just like it's over like it just the the everyone i think watching the show knows that's not the show's strength like it they don't choreograph fight scenes very well it's not an action show but it seems like even taking that into consideration the the end result seems like an afterthought in these episodes well, they really, they botch, what they do is they botch the ticking clock of this episode. It's per, like 12.10. You have to get to 12.10 without Eric Estrada getting killed. Like, that's a perfectly good ticking clock for Kolchak to have to do. Hmm. Um, you know, but they don't really keep track of what time it is. So when Erica Estrada runs off, you don't really know how much time's left before he's going to die. And also everything's related to, like, they have to, that guy's the one who has to be sacrificed. But as soon as he runs off the story changes where it's like, oh, I guess the mummy could also just get up itself and cut out Kolchak's heart and still be successful. Well, and yeah, that's then... what I was wondering. I'm like, is this, is the mummy trying to finish his own ritual? And if so, then clearly this does not, 
is not subscribed to what it's supposed to See, be. I didn't think that's what it was. I think it was just ticked off that it knew it only had a short amount of time, and it was ticked off that uh, the ceremony was ruined. That's what I thought. Okay. Right, right. So it's just and kind I, of an angry guy. Yeah. Okay. Vengeful now. I even thought, like, the gag where Kolchak looks at his watch... I didn't get that he was looking at it and he thought it was currently 1210. Like, I, they didn't even land that gag where his watch... Like, if that's the case, like, that's a good gag that, like, he's trying to survive till 1210. He gets there, thinks he's safe, and then he's like, oh, shit, my watch is fast. But they don't even really land that ticking clock very well. They don't, like... They just never land any of those beats. So, like, just a bunch of stuff happens and then the mummy falls over. Yeah, and you'd also think, like... And I don't think they use this at all, but, like, they're in a sports stadium. Like, they could have put a big clock on the wall too yeah. that could have been part of the shot that we could have seen so we it's not like we have to have Kolchak looking at his watch every other shot like there could have been a way to incorporate the time into the scene much better and they just but, but you're both right that that's what this episode's missing and I guess I didn't even realize it till we started speaking about it it's the momentum and that having that time would have given that sense of propulsion and that sense of urgency that this episode doesn't really have because they really want to just have him go around and talk to various kind of vendors very quirky people and then they're like oh yeah by the way with a couple minutes left he better do this by 12 10 like yeah you could have just done that at the beginning and kind of made it an interesting you know i mean the whole episode could have taken place near the end where he's i don't know you know it's it's that pressure of time but i mean it's maybe asking too much for an episode that they've established what this show is yeah but they also could have done the simplest thing which is like made like every murder take place at 12 10 at night or something Right. And like that would have been mm. even just that to, to set, kind of set that up early on would have been a little bit more interesting. But right. You know, it does end, though, on a great voiceover where uh, Carl's just like, well, I stopped the final sacrifice. But will it present the, will it prevent the apocalypse in 52 years? I'll be dead by 2727. <laughs> will you? Dun, dun, I'm dun. Just like, Jordan will be. That's five years from now. He's not going to make it. Holy moly. Come on. If I keep smoking those pipes. This is a reason enough just to push through till 2027 to see if the mummy comes yeah. back. Because see if Kolchak yeah, pulled it enough. off. We, we have to wait, you guys. Five years from now, we'll check back in. Yeah. I I must, I have a feeling that he's not going to come back, but the mummy's eyes did open right at the end in the last shot of the show. So Now, here's a question for you. On the IMDb trivia, they say that is a goof, that the actor shouldn't have done that. But do you think that was a uh, active choice? Oh, totally. I mean, yeah, it was a choice. I think what they did, I think that was... A, my guess when I was looking at that was that was not why they shot that. That was probably a bit in between stuff where the actor opened his eyes because it didn't really seem like it had a lot of intention to it. But mm. I think they intentionally decided to use it at the end of the episode to make Cut it, it more in exciting. There for the twist. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I did like my favorite part of it was just that it was like all t- talking about a date, the far off date of 2027. I'm like, oh, we're almost there. We're almost there, you guys. Yeah, 52 years after Kolchak. Coming up, but he was right. He didn't make it. Oh, it's true. Darren McGavin, unfortunately, rest <laughs> in peace, did not make it. I did think that when I watched it, it made me kind of sad. I'm like, I thought the exact same thing. I was like, "Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're dead. We're not gonna get there." All right, you guys ready to move on? Yeah, let's do it. Here is the IMDb summary for episode 18: The Nightly Murders. Tuesday, 11:15 p.m. If you know anything about Chicago politics, you'll understand why a 63-year-old ward captain was braving the ungentle hour and the less gentle streets. You see, ward captain Leo J. Ramutka was returning home from a wake. 
And off Wiedersehen to a loyal, registered voter he knew would one day meet him in that great polling station in the sky. What Ward Captain Ramutka failed to foresee was just how soon that meeting would be. Plans to turn a failing medieval museum into a party center animate the bewitched black armor of an infamously misanthropic knight. <laughs> I love that the misanthropic? knight was just misanthropic and that was the entire motivation for the, the story. He's just a scamp. He just doesn't like people and he's pissed. That's it. You want to talk about uh, a villain with a very weak piece of motivation. This one uh, had it in space. He's a villain yeah. because he's a villain. That was pretty much the explanation. Uh, the episode begins with a murder, the death of 63-year-old ward captain Leo J. Ramutkin, a man with the face of a Dick Tracy villain. I had to look up what a ward captain was. Did you guys know before this what a ward captain was? No. No. Not at all. Yeah. Do you, did you look up what a ward captain was? No. No, neither of you looked up. I looked up what a ward captain was. A ward captain, it's a political position. So basically the ward captain oh. is... They're elected and they're a member of a party, but they're basically, um, they represent the party at kind of a grassroots level in a rock, what, what, in a riding ward and help ensure like voter registration, election awareness. They distribute party literature, trying to get people out to like party related events leading up to elections, that kind of thing. It's often oh, yeah. a volunteer position or they get us would get a small stipend for it, but um, technically it's an elected position and it's where... Some people like start their career in politics will start off as being like hmm. a ward cap or precinct captain. There's various names for it, but um, all anyway, I know so is he gets crossbowed like no one's business. He does. Yeah, that's that's the end of the ward captain. I mean, quick. Leo J, he might have been a late bloomer. He became ward captain, captain stars, his uh, his political career at 63. But you're right. It ends quickly as he walks in his front door and the bolt from a crossbow kills him and a a knight in a suit of armor, stands at the top of the stairs holding that crossbow. Yeah. That was another another really slow-moving villain for an episode. I know, right? Like so they just these just these heavy guys that just lurch yeah. along. Um, but that was definitely one of the fastest murder starts that I've seen on almost any show. Like literally, there were like three. Like the guy pulled up to his house, walked inside, bam, murdered at the front door. <laughs> off we are, off yeah. we go to the races. Like. This is a Kolchak staple. You got to kill someone so fast off the bat. At least we didn't get stock footage of some other guy at a football game or whatever. <laughs> right? Yes, exactly. It was exciting and gripping, and there was a knight. But I mean, well, this villain might be a little slow and lumbering. I the big I think the big the big exciting bit of this episode is Kolchak arrives at the crime scene looking for a scoop, and as always, there's a police captain who's already there working. But this particular one is interesting. Because the police have put on the, quote, Edward R. Murrow of Homicide to investigate the case. Yeah, Vernon. A gentleman named Vernon W. Roche. Yeah, he's a great character. I thought he was, th this is probably the second, uh, maybe third, but I would say the second really interesting uh, detectives or captains or sergeant, whatever he is, as the sort of like slight antagonist to, uh, to Kolchak. This guy, this guy is something different, though. I like that he just like waxes poetic all the time. Yeah, he's very well. He's he's supposed to be extremely educated, and he speaks very philosophically, um, and is not at all useful as a cop. So you know, when Kolchak sort of asks initially what he, what the cop may be thinking about 
this crime or the motivation. He gives this speech about Chicago having six million personalities pressed together in a configuration as complex as it is alienating. I wrote that down because I thought it was cool. And then he, t- he just sort of talks about the disintegration of the family and vertically mobile people and people being disappointed. And then their personalities become atomized and they erupt in a force of rage. Like he just has this idea that crime is caused by the breakdown of society and has all these theories about why and how and um and he looks great he looks like uh what's that guy from murder the now perot he's got like a real detective what? mustache oh poirot yes yeah he's got like and he's got this he's got sideburns and he's got a mustache he's got kind of a long face he's very tall i can't remember if he was wearing three-piece suits but he was very well put together and unlike most of the cops that Kolchak bumps into, he actually seems to really like reporters. He's very like he seems to really enjoy talking to Kolchak. It's it's very interesting, and it's almost a funny twist because usually they're just like the cops are dumb, loud, and hate the reporters. And this guy is smart, likes likes Kolchak right off the bat, and is like really trying to talk to him about stuff. And and he'll put and he's putting up with Kolchak being annoying, pulling out his tape recorder, forcing him to record things. And Kolchak seems genuinely flustered. Both by how smart this man is, because he can't understand him, and how friendly he is. I well, I so I I didn't get, think that he couldn't understand him necessarily. I just think that Kolchak was immediately realizing that what this guy was saying to him was not useful, right? Like Kolchak is trying to get details, like police related details, and this guy is just going on a rant. I think what it is specifically though is Kolchak wants specific answers quickly and. He just doesn't have time for it. This guy is just verbose, and that's what it is. So it's like, even if there's an answer in there, Kolchak's like, I don't have time for it. I just want, just tell me what, you know, was it a knife? Was it a gun? What is it? That's all he wants the answer for. Yeah, absolutely. And at one point he says, like, I can't remember if it was this scene or a later scene when the cop goes on a rant and Kolchak sort of says, you took me two hours to get out of there. And he just, he's not able to continue on with his research and his reporting because this guy's just holding him up with these long rants. He lo- he loves to talk. He loves to he loves to philosophize, and it's too esoteric for old Kolchak. Um, but shortly after this murder takes place, a second murder happens. A Chicago real estate mogul is murdered. He's driving home. He's pulling into his uh, his driveway. He's just like pulls in as you would with your car. And that that night is waiting there with uh, a jousting lance that he shoves straight through that guy's front windshield and and just skewers him on the spot. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. We, we're getting to see a lot of different medieval weapons in this episode and it's pretty fun because the knight just has access apparently which we'll find out why has access to a plethora of weapons every murder is different like the next one the next one happens the next night and it's a a the knight shows up he's swinging a mace around this time and a soft drink mogul is like laying in bed a gentleman named brewster hawkins who started the canadian american leisure corp which i thought was a great name (laughs) for a soft drink company um and the knight just walks in and just like smashes him in the head with that fucking mace (laughs) Yeah, and he keeps calling out for Charles, who's presumably his butler. Um, and he's just like, Charles, Charles, Charles. And he just yells for Charles as he's being murdered by this knight. And then, and it's it's actually, like, I just thought it was actually kind of cool because, yes, the knight is a slow-moving villain, so it's a little bit goofy. But they've managed in almost every situation to make it believable that it the attacks can still make sense. In the first situation, it's 
quite sudden. Like he walks in his door and the knight is at the top of the stairs and shoots the arrow at him. So the knight doesn't have to move. And the second one, he shoots through the window of the car. And the third one, this guy is in bed. And so he's kind of, I mean, he's a little bit encumbered by his, you know, his sheets and covers and all of that kind of stuff. And he looks through his door and he has, there's a, some kind of lounge or like outer bedroom area where there's a fireplace. And this knight is just walking quite menacingly towards him beside this fireplace. And I was sort of thinking, I'm like, if that happened to me, I think I would probably also freeze. Like, I don't think that I would get out of the bed in time to escape this night. But it's it's uh, it, it's funny because where some of the villains in this have sort of been um, these sort of spectral figures that sort of like appear and attack and, and disappear, why it's effective... Uh, with this knight is because you don't have to see him traveling to and from the murders because if you saw that it would really take away from it because i'm like how's how's he getting there if he's just riding he's the bus this place in he's Chicago. like slowly trudging down the street yeah exactly but it's like don't worry about that you don't need to worry about that it's scary when he's in the room yeah also do we notice that the guy because it's going to become a plot point later on because the knight steps on a phone um when he's walking over to hit the guy with the mace and so it becomes a thing about the amount of weight it would have taken to crush the phone. But then later on when Kolchak comes in and he's talking to the cop about it and they're like, hey, uh, he's like, what do you think happened here with the phone? And they're like, oh, we they think he smashed, whoever murdered the guy smashed the phone so that he wouldn't uh, make a call, which is actually a pretty good explanation. But then he's like, what about those phones? And the guy had two more phones on his nightstand. And I don't know if that was like a rich guy thing like he has a phone for office and a phone for his butler and a phone for whatever but i'm like he had three phones in his room isn't that odd i don't remember when they had i remember when there were phones in the office but those were were those phones from the the guy's room is that what you're saying yeah yeah i thought it was just vincenzo's collection of antique phones no that's later on Oh. Much later, he'll go to that bedroom to investigate, and there are two more phones on the nightstand. But Jordan, I mean, the real big question is, why was one of his three bedroom phones in the middle of the floor? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he just had it on the floor for the night to stand on. I mean, it's like, because the night needed to stand on something, that's why. At any rate, this has so there's now been three murders by this night, and Kolchak has started investigating, and he, you know, he's trying to track down some information about this crossbow bolt from the first murder, and uh, he'll go. He'll go talk to a man who runs a gun store, which not much happens in the scene other than like explaining that it's a it's a crossbow bolt that you'd get from medieval crossbow. What I did like about, as with most of these things, when Kolchak visits a source, he's a, kind of a bit of a, a character. It's always a character, and this particular character, I guess, is someone that Kolchak has visited repeatedly because I guess he knows about guns, and he doesn't want to be bribed. What Kolchak has been doing is he's promised to write this man's autobiography. So while Kolchak's there, he has to stand there. He, this man will dictate to him like three new chapters of his autobiography. Yeah, that was a great pickup. I thought this was really good. Well, I, I was going to ask you guys if you had seen this guy before. Was he actually from previous episodes or they were just kind of implying that he was a previous source? No, he's new. He's new. It's just it's just one of those things where they've built the world a little bit. You know, there's this past history that we don't know about. I I thought it was really a good scene. And these are the sort of things that work well in this show. You know, this little bit of world building, these other characters. And only a few times I think we've had people like that um, guy who works in the morgue. He came back a couple times. But most of the time it's like a one-off just to be like, oh, yeah, he's dealt with these people before in the past. 
I mean, the one nice part is, you know, he's like, I can't help you with the crossbow, I can't help you with the gun, but, like, there is a medieval museum you could go check out, and it's one of the rare occasions in Kolchak when he goes to talk to another expert, it's actually going to tie it directly into the crime that's happening, but he heads to this medieval museum where he meets the curator, Mendel Boggs, and Mendel Boggs is in a bit of a tense situation with the interior decorator who's there, Minerva Musso. Because you see, the museum's fallen on hard times and has recently been purchased by a soda corporation, which is turning it into a medieval-themed discotheque. And that soda corporation? Why, it's the Canadian American Leisure Corp. What a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought... Um, they, so they start the scene at the museum before Kolchak arrives. They start with the scene with the woman and, and the man fighting. And I thought they were like a married couple. I, I wrote down, couple... Mayor is bickering and hates each other because basically this the the interior decorator is trying to move all of these artifacts around and the guy is freaking out about it. But I really just thought that it was like some woman who wanted to redecorate and her husband liked his collection of medieval stuff. What I like, and I don't think this is spoiling anything, is later on uh, when they're trying to figure out who this person is who's been doing these murders. Uh, this uh, I can't remember the, the guy's name. What's his name, Luke? The How can you curator? not remember Mendel Boggs? Mendel Boggs, they sort of they sort of think maybe he's the person who does it. And I, I remember thinking, like, there's no way. The guy's like 75 years old. It's not gonna, he can't put that armor on. He's not, a, he's not a very good culprit. Yeah, but, I mean, he, old people do walk slower, and the knight was walking very <laughs> good point. slowly. Good point. You never know. I just want to give a shout-out to the writer of this episode because the names in it are, like, top-notch. Uh, uh, Soda Mogul. Brewster Hawkins, mm-hmm. curator Mendel Boggs, interior decorator Minerva Musso. These are all like mm-hmm. A-tier names. These are like Harry Potter <laughs> level names at this point. At any rate, he doesn't learn much at the museum other than like it's a little tense there and that definitely medieval weapons were used to kill these people. So Kolchak decides he's going to go check into the death of the soda mogul instead. And he has a friend at the telegraph company who makes him a fake telegraph from Brewster Hawkins in which he, it's just like, come visit me at my home, my old college chum. And Kolchak basically flashes this telegram to his, his, his very, like, surly butler to get in the door, basically. He's just like, see, I knew your boss, and he invited me here, so you must tell me all about his murder and his soda concern. Is that fraud, though, Luke? Yeah, but Kolchak commits fraud every other day. This is fine. <laughs> this is every day for Kolchak. Well, I don't know if it constitutes... Cause Telegram companies are private. It's not the U.S. Postal mm. Service, so it does not. It's not mail fraud. Oh, okay. So, all right, I'll allow yeah. it. But but really, all Kolchak gets out of this is uh, not. He eventually gets caught for not knowing enough about the soda man soda business, so he couldn't possibly be friends with him. Yeah, the butler is like, if you're such good friends with him, why have you not received his gift baskets every year? And Kolchak's like, oh, you got me. I, I didn't get a gift basket. We're not friends. Yeah. I like that his gift baskets to his friends every year are just like mix for their drinks. It's not alcohol, just the mix for your drink. Well, it's a soda company. <laughs> so it's a great gift basket. I would be really happy if I got a selection of fancy ass sodas every Christmas. I'll keep that in mind. Yes, you should. <laughs> but what he really learns is he, he sees the phone that was crushed by the night. It got stepped on. And this basically really puts Kolchak on his next thing. Is he really wants to know how much pressure it would take to crush a telephone and to do this to find this information out he heads back to the ins office he sabotages his desk phone just so he can call a phone company technician to come in to fix it 
And while the technician is there, he's going to ask him, how much pressure would you need to crush a phone? Uh, the answer, 420 PSI. <laughs> yeah. Again, this was another scene where I have no problem with them doing the scene, but it could have just as easily been a voiceover. It could have just, because he's done it before, where he's like, anyways, I found out, I talked to a guy in the phone company, it would take 400 pounds to, to crush a phone. Anyways, back off to the museum or wherever. Yeah, but it allowed for like this funny opportunity where the phone guy realized that there were several other contraband phones in the office, these like right. older style phones, and he confiscates them and Vincenzo gets pissed off because it was like phones that he liked. And then Kolchak tells Vincenzo and Updike that he's redecorating and he's going to replace them with plants. And then he leaves. And it was just it was just a great little scene. It was just the right little nugget of humor that I think was good. I'm pretty sure Vincenzo says at one point when all the phones get taken, he's like, we had a good thing going. It was like something like that. And I was like, what? 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 Yes, I don't understand. Well, what like happens he... is because the phone guy realizes Kolchak sabotaged his own phone to get him there. The the phone guy's pissed off. And he's like, I'm taking away all these bootleg phones in the office. And, you know, Vincenzo's quite upset. And I found out why, Jordan. Why? Because at the time, Americans were not allowed to own phones. AT&T had a monopoly and would assign customers phones. So it was illegal to have additional phones. So if a phone tech came to your home, saw a contraband phone they had not assigned you, they were legally within their rights to confiscate the phone from your home or business. Okay, that makes more sense. So it's it's a weird timestamp of this of this period because I thought it was I was like, what what is he getting away with? It's like just plugging some phones, but that that answers that. Okay, so people rent people would rent their phone from the phone company along with getting the service, and they were not allowed to have additional telephones. Yes, phone the phone company said at the time that they could not have uh, other phones plugged into the phone lines because it would damage the infrastructure. So they had to keep a tight lid on who had a phone and where they got it from. Right, but were they tracking the soda magnets' phones? Because clearly, the soda magnet had several <laughs> additional phones as well. He's got that money. That's a good he can point. pay for it, baby. He's bribing the uh, the AT and T people all the time, I guess. But what's important here is is Kolchak's like four hundred and twenty psi. Why that suit of armor? It weighed four hundred pounds. So therefore, a person inside the suit of armor would have been exactly the right weight to crush the phone. And they were moving so slowly. Surely it was that old man, Mendel Boggs. <laughs> I'll just Scooby-Doo the mask yeah. off and I'll catch him in the act. That's right. Yeah, he's like, I noticed he has bad knees. He moves slowly. Now, Kolchak needs to confirm his suspicion here that it's Mendel Boggs. So he goes to visit the interior decorator, Minerva Musso, at her home to ask her if she's seen anything strange while she's been interior decorating, which leads to a very strange scene on its own right. I could not follow this scene. So she first talks about how he's a weirdo and he speaks to the artifacts and she'd seen him speaking either to the artifacts or talking into a mirror in poetry talking about cleaving things in twain um but then there was also something about david bowie she was she was bragging about that uh she was supposed to be a designer for david bowie's home oh okay yes it's a it's a weird kolchak comes to her house the door is open so he lets himself in and she he finds her on the phone in bed and she's just like so he steps he's like oh i'm sorry to bother you your front door is open she's on the phone with a friend and her and she's like, oh, my friend on the phone, a man has entered my room. And she's very excited that a stranger has walked into her bedroom. 
Oh, yes. And she also was like, hmm, I wonder if he's here for robbery or rape. And then he says neither. And then she seems very disappointed that he is not there to either rob her or rape her. And then she hangs up on her friend. I'm like, what? Well, that's just what it is. He's like, I'm a reporter. And then she's like very disgusted. She's like, ugh, a reporter hangs up. And she's like, I'm not going to tell you about how I'm decorating David Bowie's home if that's what you're here for. Right. Okay. That was the David Bowie thing. Because I didn't catch it the first time. And then it was like at the end of the scene, somebody mentioned it. And I was like, what? What is happening? What does David Bowie have to do with this episode? Yeah. And as you said, she says the only weird thing she's seen about Boggs at the museum is like sometimes he'll he'll recite poetry to the armor or swing, swing around some of the weapons when he thinks no one's looking. But all of it doesn't matter because Kolchak hears the clanking of metal coming. And soon a knight is smashing through the door coming to kill Minerva Musso. Yeah, smashes like shining styles through the door, knocks a dresser, because he puts a dresser in front of the door to try to stop him, um, but it just like kind of gets knocked on top of him somehow, and then, so he's like out of commission, it doesn't care about him for did some you, reason, because he's the star. Did you notice then, uh, uh, Kolchak's now classic misogyny came into the forefront here? <laughs> no, what was that? He's pushing the he's pushing the dresser in front of the door, and Minerva Musa is like, "What are you doing?" And he turns around, and he's like, "Get in the bathroom, you dumb broad." <laughs> I missed that line. It was like so angry at her. I was like, "Jesus, calm down, Kolchak." Well, he's now he's gonna feel bad about himself because then the knight goes in and chops her to death. Chops her, and that's right the up. last thing you said to her. I know. Axe this time. He's got an axe this time. He's always switching it up this night. He loves to switch it up. Yeah, yeah, it's great. That's what I meant. You could just see all these different weapons. Yeah, that's right. So what is it? It was crossbow, lance, uh, mace, and now axe. Yes, yeah. that's right. Right. But the police arrive. Uh, Captain Roche is there and uses some smelling stock to wake up, smelling salt to wake up Kolchak and. The two of them are really butting heads by this point in the episode. Like, Roche is implying that he thinks that Kolchak murdered her. Kolchak thinks that Roche is kind of a, a bad detective that who's just trying to, like, milk him for information because he can't do his own job. He's a bit of a lazy investigator, if you will. And Roche is like, well, I'll bury you in paperwork. And if that won't get you to tell me what's going on, I'll, let's go in the bathroom right now and I'll waterboard you. <laughs> <laughs> is it, is it what, he says something but what is it actually he says he tells one of the officers he's like y- you're not gonna listen to me he turns to the officers and fill up the bathtub yeah i wrote right. he quotes shakespeare and then threatens kolchak using complex vocabulary <laughs> that is my note <laughs> this does cow kolchak so kolchak kind of lets him in on what he thinks is going on he's like i think the curator mendel boggs is doing it they head down to the medieval museum and he accuses mendel of the murders and, of course, this is the scene you're talking about where the police are like, well, let's see if the shoe fits. And they literally, like, disassemble the uh, arm, suit of armor and try to forcibly shove it onto the curator's head. <laughs> and it doesn't at all go on. And so if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Yeah. It's never truer than it was that day. So he's exonerated and the mystery continues. But it yes, is yes. that is... armor. Like, we've kind of established at this point that is that it's that armor. It's from that museum. Kolchak recognizes it from the attack. He's like, I saw that exact armor. I know exactly how this is all coming together. And it's also um, the same exact weapons, but the weapons don't have blood on them. Like the weapons have been cleaned off every time. They've all been wiped off on the victim's clothing. That's right. Um, it's very funny because this is the scene where Roche, I, 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 this is a very small thing, but Roche basically turns to Carl and he's just like, listen, Carl, I 100% you believe a knight in armor is killing people. But I actually think you suffer from auto-suggestion. I think it's turned your brain 
into onion dip. And I was like sitting there watching this. I'm just like, you know, it'd be great if this turned out to be true. Cause like Kolchak rarely proves anything at the end of the episode. He rarely gets the story written. He rarely is, has any people believe him. What if this whole time Carl's just like highly delusional. We've just been watching his delusions all season. What was the show that it ended like that? Was it soap? I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think the I think the sitcom so- soap ended, and he found out it was a guy um, in some sort of mental asylum, and he was dreaming the whole thing. I'm pretty right. sure. Really? I forget you're 15 years older than us. Y- yeah, sorry. There's the, the what, what was it? The Bob Newhart show or whatever woke up. He woke up in bed in the final. It was episode. a dream. It was a dream. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't and I think Saint Elmo's Fire has a similar ending, right? Oh, maybe I'm thinking Saint Elmo's Fire, not soap. Sorry. I'm mixing up soap and Saint Elmo's Fire. I didn't <laughs> either I didn't watch either of the shows, that's why. At any rate, Carl's Carl's got back on the beat. He's he's trying to look into the armor's origin now cuz he's still he's like the armor has something to do with it. If it doesn't fit Mendel Boggs, something's going on with that armor. And he goes to a shop, a storefront that solely sells people coats of arms that's it that's their whole business and they have a a really like good racket going on because they he goes in and they immediately ask him to introduce himself and when he says his name they start saying oh you're descended from this line of people and there was this famous duke in in poland named kolchak and he did this and he fought in warsaw that he was called the lion of warsaw and all this stuff um but it's all a racket because basically the woman goes into the back room and she's like, I'm going to get you your crest and you can buy it from us and it'll be engraved. And she picks up this crest, this, you know, art piece or whatever. And it says like McDougal on the bottom and she cuts off the McDougal part and then brings it back out and is like, this is the coat of arms from the Kolchak family and tries to get Kolchak to buy it. I like that Kolchak's like, huh, my grandma always said we were descended from slobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, just a weird throwaway line. At any rate, uh, Kolchak's there because he's going to describe to them the coat of arms he's seen above the armor at the museum. And while they are clearly scam artists who just kind of like talk up a customer to get them to get the, uh, I believe he buys the, uh, is it the oak he gets or does he get like a nice redwood backing to it? He gets the oak. He wanted the pine, but they convinced him to get the oak. Right. They do actually know quite a bit about these coat of arms because they, the one, he just described, he doesn't have a photo, he describes the coat of arms and they're like, oh yeah, I know what that is. That's the infamous Metacor family of Burgundy. Um, they were very bad people, and the last of their line was particularly a misanthrope who he skipped the crusade so he could stay home to brutalize the people at home. <laughs> he, he was he was a misanthrope. He just waited for all the other wealthy landowners to go off to war so that he could just pillage the countryside. And not only to do that, he practiced the black arts and had a necromancer build him that suit of armor, which was rendered invincible by its powers. So he was he could not be killed while wearing that suit of armor. And it wasn't until uh, the sorry, it wasn't until Pope Gregory the Ninth blessed a battle axe to penetrate the armor that he was finally killed and taken down in medieval Europe. Um, but not before he whispered his dying breaths where he vowed he'd never permit music and gaiety around his resting place. So now he's mad they're building a disco. I'm doing the same thing when I die. No music or gaiety at your resting place? No, not at my resting yeah. place. Somewhere else, please. Yeah. Make sure you put a sign up just in case somebody decides <laughs> to have a disco there. I, mean, I believe that's on his tombstone you've already purchased, Rachel. <laughs> That's right. Um, but I have to say, if you're going to, if you have, um, like, let's say you have a magical suit that 
can only get beaten by one other magical element, don't have that be anywhere near you. You know? Put them on the other side of the world. Put the, the Make sure the axe is at one side and the costume's at another. Well, it still doesn't really explain to me, like, is he buried under the museum? Or is it just his resting place because that's where his armor is now? It's unclear. It's unclear. I mean, I think we're supposed to think... The resting place thing threw me. I think we're supposed to think that somehow this armor obviously is mystical because it's built by a necromancer, which we know has to do with the dead. And so, so maybe his soul has entered it. But the weird part is they said at his resting place. I'm like, well, clearly he's been transported far away from his resting place to Chicago. Yeah. As has all of his weapons, like just happen to be every everything happens to have been transported together. This museum actually too bad it lost all its funding because it clearly had like a lot of money because they got all this guy's stuff. there. Yeah. yeah, it had some really great artifacts. But Kolchak, with this information, he goes and breaks into this medieval museum at night to, uh, I'm not sure what his plan is, to look around. What I like is the armor at night. Uh, it just walk when he doesn't have someone to murder, it just kind of walks around night at the museum style. It's just kind of like wandering the museum, <laughs> hanging out. <laughs> Kolchak snaps a few, snaps a few pics of it walking around. And of course, this, uh, this apparently angers the uh, armor. It's just like, oh, no photos, man. That's not, that's not, that's not cool. No photos of the museum. Um, <laughs> And then, and then, obviously, there's a bit of a run through the museum as Kolchak's dodging it, throwing a, a spear at him, and he's he's jumping around. Kolchak makes some really weird noises in this fight too. He's like, Whoa, <laughs> and the knight is just lumbering so slowly yeah. along. It's a very awkward thing. And like Kolchak, at one point, stops at the top of a small staircase, sort of stands there, doesn't move, and then just rolls down this, like, falls <laughs> arbitrarily down the stairs for no real reason, and the knight's still coming after him. Darren McGavin loves a pratfall. <laughs> I guess. But, Jordan, at, this is kind of the thing what you were implying earlier, is that for some reason, this medieval museum in Chicago also happens to have the holy axe mm-hmm. blessed by Pope Gregory in a like in a, in a glass case so Kolchak is able to smash that glass case pull out the these axe which is too heavy for him to lift like it, that's the thing it's so big it's too heavy for him to lift and as the knight approaches he manages to get enough strength to lightly tap the side of the armor suit of armor very lightly he very lightly taps the suit of armor with the axe that basically causes the armor to lose all integrity fall forward and impale itself on the rest of the axe Mm-hmm. It was it was such an awkward ending, and I I wasn't even clear what he was. I didn't really get the battle axe plot point when it had happened, and so Kolchak's pulling out this axe, and I'm going, why Why did you pick this weapon, Kolchak? You are so weak, and you cannot lift Can't this even thing. Lift it. And then, yeah, and then the knight just falls and disintegrates on top of this axe, and I I didn't realize why. So that actually makes if, a bit more If sense. I was that knight, the first thing I'd do, the first night I lumber around, I'd walk over, get that axe, break it over my knee, and go there. Yeah. Now, what are you going to do? Nothing. Now I'm safe in my own home. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Well, that's the end of it. But I, here's something we haven't said is uh, ward captain, soda mogul, uh, some other dude driving home real uh, real estate mogul yeah. and interior decorator all these people were killed by the night and we haven't said why and it's because they were all involved in the city planning to get yeah. the permits to build a discotheque this is what yeah, the night has pieced together it's, yeah, he's he's done his research better than kolchak has and uh it's not even that things were noisy it's that 
they might get noisy later on. He's it's a like, real NIMBY move. This man yeah. is really doing, pulling a NIMBY move. He's like, no, no discotheque in my neighborhood thing. And he's managed to trace in particular. So the ward captain obviously has to do with politics and permits, but he's managed to trace this developer who I guess owns the property next door that may become a parking lot for the discotheque. When it wild. comes into play. So the, the knight has clearly done a lot of research. And I wonder if there was a cut scene where he lumbered into the records department of the city hall. Right. Trying to find out who was kind of starting this whole thing. Either that or what's his face Boggs like told the knight all of the secrets. Which I think is I mean, better. That would have been that would have been a thing where Boggs was like, you know giving the night information or controlling him, but that turned out not to be the case. Yeah. And it's so funny because you know what would have been also great is if this is an episode where they had opened a nightclub and it, like a slasher film, a knight was killing young people at a nightclub. Like that's also like a more sensible version of this episode. Yeah. Kills like the young sexy singer, kills the, o- the nightclub owner, kills like somebody's bodyguard, kills, yeah. But it would have required a great deal more extras than they usually have the budget for in Kolchak. Instead, it was about real estate deals and an angry, misanthropic knight. And just to be clear, the knight is basically a ghost, so the the suit is just full of air. Yeah, yeah. When he beats beats him, the suit just falls into Which actually doesn't make any sense because if the suit is full of air, then the math doesn't add up for the crushing of the telephone. Because the whole point of the math for the crushing mm. of the telephone was it was suit of armor plus person. But it's not suit of armor plus person. It's just an empty suit of armor filled with air. So, hmm. Otherwise, though, flawless episode. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, the logic is perfect. <laughs> I mean, we've, we've covered them both, I think, pretty extensively now. I don't know if you guys have any final notes you guys wanted to get into that we didn't cover. No, I think I got I all, think my, that's all it. my stuff. Great. Well, let's rate these episodes then. So, Jane, you know how this works. Out of out of a ten, possible ten stars, what would you give to Legacy of Terror, the Aztec uh, heart sacrifice episode? So, I I feel like I'm probably going to rate both of these maybe higher than you guys. I liked both of them much better than I liked the first two episodes that of Kolchak that I watched. Um, I just sort of, like I said before, I felt like they were kind of finding their feet in terms of like the humorous moments and getting to know some of the secondary characters. Um, and also the um, the first one, the what was it, sorry? Legacy of Terror, um, I was totally fooled by the plot because I was so into the feminist perspective that was occurring. So I would definitely give this one a 7.5. And the extra 0.5 wow. is for Eric Estrada. He just gets the bump up right there. <laughs> you got that Eric Strada bump. That's right. Jordan, what do you think? Yeah, I'm, I don't disagree with in terms of the uh, little humorous bits and stuff. I did think they work. But, uh, you know, as now someone who has now watched 17, 18 of these, I'm, I'm getting tired of the paint by numbers. And I'm also getting tired of a culture has a different culture that's not ours has something weird. Yes. Uh, it's a monster. And they just, they go down that hole too many times for me. So it is like a five out of 10. Mm. Yeah, I was a little bit like dismayed by that sort of, sort of, you know, racist kind of like, oh, it's an ancient culture and they're And you know what? We didn't even talk about it that much. In terms of the cold check episodes, this is, and this is faint praise, but this is the least, I think, offensive of, of the ones we've seen so far. Would you agree with me on that, Luke? 
Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. It's just like of the ones where they're stealing from a culture to make a horror villain, I was just like, well, this is might be the least offensive version of that we've yeah. seen thus far as as far as these things go. Um, I agree with Jordan in the way that it is, is very much a paint-by-numbers episode. I think we've seen this variation quite a few times. But, Jane, I think to your point, it is one of the better written versions of it, like – the beats are funny. There's more twists and turns at work. Like I like they had a far more competent writer involved in this one that made it sing a little bit more. It was a lot funnier. It kind of did all the things it does well. It was just inside of a framework we've seen a lot of times. So I, I'm torn sort of back and forth that way. I, I'm going to give it a six. I think it's a solid episode, if not like one of their more original. At least it's like someone who's like, I, I get what this is and I can make it fun. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing too about I, and I don't know what the other episodes were like where they were riffing off of cultures, but like the one good thing about this is like they have several other characters who are Mexican who are not stereotypes. Like they're just regular people. So there's yeah. the consulate guy who's just trying to sell, you know, you know, talk about business in Mexico. There's a very well-educated like professor who's talking about stuff. And even Eric Estrada's character is a person with with a little bit of depth as we discover at the end. So it was it wasn't just like they plucked some random culture and just only used the some bizarre thing that they made up. Yeah, and that's what I mean. I think that's what even we were talking about earlier like the scene where they talk over the woman and they make a point of saying why are you talking over her? You want us to interview her. Like they the writer clearly was smart enough to catch where these tropes were going to be negative and at least to try to give them like a turn. Like the professor who runs the exhibit about Mexico is it seems to be a Mexican and also is just like thinks Kolchak is an idiot. Right. Like He's just like, you're dumb. Yeah, uh, you're annoying me. Go away. like all these things are better than they should have been. So that's why I think like I'm going to give it a six just because like I think plot wise they've walked that road too much but it's like of the ones they've done this way i think it's it's by far one of the best versions of it right all right the nightly murders jane what do you think about this knight in shining armor so i actually also enjoyed this i thought it was a bit goofier obviously because the things that we talked about of like the knight figuring out about the city permits and also isn't he from (laughs) france and also all of these things but I did like how he killed people with a different weapon each time. And I liked, I did find that like his attacks were like pretty scary. Like they did a good job of filming it to make him seem quite large and menacing and powerful. Um, And uh, yeah, and I thought it was kind of fun. So I would probably give this one a six and a half for me. Well, we're on the same page, Jen. I'm also giving a six and a half. I, you know what, I think... Campy works well in Kolchak, and this one had some fun campy elements, and, like, it doesn't all quite ring out. It's so funny to me that, like, the conclusion of his, uh, oh, the knight uh, just bowed on his deathbed. Uh, not, no fun. No fun near me. <laughs> um, like, it's such a funny, dumb aspect. And, like, you know, there are some pretty, like, the end is really lackluster, but, like, there's some moments of fun. It's got some levity. I, I like it's it's like the headless motorcycle one. It's so silly that it kind of makes it better. But this this isn't nearly as good as the headless motorcycle. One, but I'm gonna go six point five. See that that was your your last point. I agree with Luke. It's like this is similar to the headless horseman uh, or headless motorbike guy. But that was such a better episode, and everything was more fun. This just the whole time I was like, this is gonna be dumb. And then at the end I was like, 
it is dumb <laughs> it's a it's a little ghost in a costume that just falls and kills itself i, I thought it was it, it was too it was too much dumb for me and not enough fun so i'm only giving it a four Aww. you didn't even like the detective eh? the the their their big police detective who is uh, a match for kolchak that's all fine but it's just like it's in service of a dumb episode right like all those bits are fine but they don't add up to anything for me like it's bits and pieces you're like that's good that's good and it's like but for what so we can have a night lumber around and then kill himself (laughs) stupid (laughs) (laughs) well that about wraps it up so jane thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast again thanks for having me it was really fun what are your feelings like having seen the fairy some first like i think it was three and four and now you've come back to like this the penultimate episodes of this show do you feel like it changed much between those or do you feel like it it stayed the same i do feel like i've said like it's found itself a little bit um i think its limitations though are very clear in particular the sort of what you guys talked about in terms of like you know the villain has to be menacing but somehow kolchak is always safe from it because it falls down or something and um i think that's maybe why you guys like the invisible ones so often because it's a lot it's a lot easier for them to like create an invisible menace like that ufo or whatever and then you don't have to deal with these sort of lumbering Mm. uh characters and um but i liked it i think i kind of understand why it was only one season um because it does seem like it's sort of at the end of its runway but i also think that it's a show that i would have really liked as a kid if it had been on tv regularly when i was young because it's exactly like it's just like it's just enough of an imaginative spark to be like oh what if this was loose in Chicago. What if that was loose in Chicago? And all the all the ends, even though it remains a mystery, all of the things that you need to solve the mystery are all within proximity and easily accessible or in the same museum or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's gotten better. Um, but I also sort of question them like, well, how much more did they really do? Like if there had been a second season, like what would it have, it would have just been more of the same. And I think that probably would have been the end of it. I think that's great insights of someone who's who saw the beginning and is now back at the end. Thank you, Jane. Thanks, Luke. And listener, you can, of course, can get a hold of us uh, at continuedrag at gmail.com if you have any thoughts about this episode or anything else, really. Uh, and on Instagram and Twitter, we will have clips from these episodes. Uh, definitely mummies swinging swords uh, and also knights swinging swords. A lot of sword swinging going on. <laughs> Yeah, make sure to include the the sword swinging and make sure to include the part where he smashes through the doors with an axe because that was pretty exciting. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a great shining moment. So that'll be there for sure. And you can find those. uh, The handle is at Continuum Drag. Um, But that wraps it up. So listener, thank you for joining us. And Jordan, I'll see you next week. See you then. Continuum Drag is recorded in Toronto, Ontario. Theme music by James Rex Seedler, produced by Jordan Dulloch and Luke Black. Special thanks to Aaron Hughes.